and that you would touch our hearts and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you understand what a significant few moments we have just spent together? Time in which the world would think we have wasted. Bowing our heads and speaking words into the air to no one in particular. That's what somebody said prayer is. Not long ago as I was listening to them speak. And yet, what we have just done is among the most significant things that we could ever possibly do. And as John Piper has said, you will not understand what prayer is for until you know that life is war. We treat it like we do an internet connection in which we can order pizza or calling from the couch for someone to bring us refreshments from the kitchen while we're watching a football game. But prayer is a vital link to our commander-in-chief whereby we may call in reinforcements because we are being overwhelmed by the enemy. Until you understand that's what prayer is for, it's going to seem like a meaningless exercise. And so we give our attention to Joshua. We will be finishing up chapters 10, moving through chapter 11 and chapter 12. But we're not going to read all of that going to read some selected verses. So look with me, first of all, at Joshua chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 11 and read verses 16 to 23. So first of all, chapter 10, beginning with, uh, with verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and all their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And then skipping down to chapter 11, beginning with verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim 
from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. It was the summer of 2007, as I recall, when we were standing in the outskirts of Merida, Mexico, looking at the very rudimentary beginnings of a church building that was beginning to take shape there. And I was standing in that plot of ground looking at a flat area of poured concrete, and I saw some names inscribed in the lower corner of that poured place of concrete. And among the names listed there were Tristan and Kim Craven, a couple who had answered God's call to mission since they had inscribed their names there several years before and were even at that moment serving with Wycliffe Bible translators in Papua New Guinea. And I thought, this is where it all began. They came on a week-long mission trip to Merida, Mexico, and later they sensed God's call and were now in full-time mission. And I bowed my head and prayed for them. Only sometime later did I find out that there had been an earthquake under the sea in the Pacific Ocean, and it had brought their area where they were living in Medang and Papua New Guinea under risk of a tsunami. A tsunami warning had been sounded. So they had gathered up their girls, got in their Hilux Toyota pickup, and headed for the hills. They got to the high country. Come to find out, the whole thing had been unnecessary. Had there been a tsunami, the warning would have been issued much too late for it to have done any good for them. And so they returned. But having gotten back home the next morning, Tristan discovered that the brake line on the Toyota Hilux had broken and all of the brake fluid had poured out in the driveway of their home. They had come all the way down those treacherous mountain passes, the brake line apparently only giving way as they pulled up into their driveway. What we pieced together later was that at the very moment that I bowed my head for prayer in Merida, Mexico, they were traversing that mountain road back down to Madang. I had no idea. More pointedly, a lady in a little town in Belzona, Mississippi, years ago, having committed to pray for missionaries, suddenly discovered that she could not sleep in the wee hours one morning. And so not being able to sleep with the missionaries on her mind, she got out of bed, knelt on her knees, and prayed for them. Only months later was it discovered that at the very hour that she was praying that intercessory prayer for those missionaries, that rebel forces were overrunning the area where they were ministering in Africa. 
And according to the leader of that warring faction who later said that they had every intention of overrunning the compound where those missionaries were, but when they got there, they discovered that there were very large men dressed in white who had circled the camp, and when they saw them, they were very much afraid, and they turned back. You will not understand what prayer is for until you understand that life is war. And as we look at the book of Joshua, we must understand this. While the Israelites of old were battling to occupy the land of promise, they are living out in a physical form what we experience spiritually every day. That is opposition, Opposition from those who are opposed to God and opposed to God's people. Not that we anymore wage weapons or wage war with the weapons that Joshua had, not with spears or arrows, not even with guns and armament. But we are called upon to engage the enemy with spiritual weapons of warfare, but a war that is very real. As we have read already, we see how that God has blessed the children of Israel to conquer the land of promise. They are able to subdue their enemies because the Lord is with them, not because they are greater in number, because they have greater weapons. The Israelites are on foot. The kings and armies that they oppose have things like chariots and other state-of-the-art weapons that the Israelites have no access to. And yet, they are successful at every turn, at least insofar as they follow the Lord. Remember, they had a setback at Ai because of sin in the camp, but nevertheless, they prevail because the Lord is with them. And we see that iterated time and again, as we read in uh, chapter 10, verse 42, how, uh, how that Joshua captured all the kings and the land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. If you're trying to live life and take it by the horns in your own strength, you will find yourself frustrated at every turn. But if we recognize that the Lord our God is with us and he is the one who fights the battle, we may experience what believers down through the ages have experienced, peace and a power to live life that would be impossible were it not for his presence. Chapter 11, verses 4 through 5, we get a sense of just who all was arrayed against God's people. Again, overwhelming numbers if you're counting and just simply doing math. And yet, even as these were arrayed against the Israelites, we read in verse 4 of chapter 11, and they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. You know, you would think Joshua in recording all of this for us so that we could read it now would just kind of summarize and say there was a whole bunch of people and they came out and they fought against us, but we won. But that would miss the point. By enumerating who they were and who their leaders were and giving us a sense of just how powerful they were, we come to an understanding that the Israelites could have never prevailed unless the Lord had been with them. I mean, chariots... That's like a group of us going up against a tank in our own understanding or against an A-10 
warthog flying overhead, trying to fight that thing with a BB gun. Compared to what weapons the people who occupied the land of Canaan had, the Israelites should have had no chance at all. And yet, we read how the Lord battled for them. We see that again in uh, verses 7 and 8, that inasmuch as these great powers had arrayed themselves against the Israelites, it says, so Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth. Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining. This is astounding that this ragtag bunch of folks who had come up out of Egypt by way of the promised land and then had had to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness until an entire generation had died away, that these would be the ones who would cross over the river and take over and occupy this land. And yet they succeeded because the Lord was with them. It's also of note to point out that all of this happened by way of instruction that had been given many years before. In chapter 11, verse 12, And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. We see the same thing down in uh, verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So God's word, spoken many years ago to Moses, remained relevant. It remained God's instruction. And therein is a pattern for us. As we read from the scriptures, commands and instructions that have been given to God's people ages ago, that word still remains relevant for us. It is God's word to us just as surely as it was God's word to them. Now, in particular, when we read Old Testament passages that command things like, you know, destroying cities and leaving no one standing, there's a different application for us. Let's understand that. Let's see it all in the light of the rest of Scripture. But the instructions that God gives, even though given ages ago, still remains relevant for us. It's still his word. It wasn't for Joshua to modify. Joshua didn't have the liberty to show up and say, well, you know, that's the way God worked back in the day of Moses. But Here's the way we understand that now. And then went about changing the instructions. That's what we see happening in our world today. But God's word remains his word and still relevant. Another thing to point out very quickly before I get into the observations on this text to make a practical application. Chapter 11, verse 20 is worth noting. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. This verse oftentimes doesn't fit into our worldview. 
and we somehow want to try to explain this away, but we cannot. We simply need to understand that God is sovereign and that God works according to the counsel of his own will and that he is not subject to our own man-made or or human-contrived mores or morality. God works according to his own will. So the people who oppose the Israelites are opposing them because God has hardened their hearts. I'm just here to tell you what the scriptures say. And so as we find ourselves opposed today by a great many, we need to understand that all of those who oppose us themselves still are only doing it under God's sovereignty. So we don't need to go about worrying, somehow thinking that God is in heaven wringing his hands going, I sure would like to use my people better than I'm able to, but I just can't do it because of all those other people that that are against them. God knows what he's doing at every turn. He has a plan and a purpose that is beyond what we are able to comprehend. And so even our enemies, though they are opposed to God, only in the end fulfill God's purposes themselves, i.e. Judas Iscariot, the Romans, the Jewish leaders, the most murderous, depraved human act ever committed on the face of the earth was the putting to death of the Son of God on Calvary's cross. And yet, in God's sovereignty, that heinous act of evil is the greatest act of good that the world will ever know. Now, if you want something to occupy your mind for the rest of the day that you cannot begin to fathom, you just think about that. And the Bible doesn't try to explain it for us. Simply declares it to us. So what I'm telling you is, as you seek the Lord in prayer, understanding that we all are engaged in warfare, we can be confident in knowing that God rules and reigns and he does all things well. So, as I have been making the point here now repeatedly, life is war. Think of how it is declared in James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? (laughs) I.e. cable news. Or church, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That's what's going on, James 4, 1. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see how that warfare is taking place It is the experience of every believer. All of us are called to fight the good fight, to put sin to death, even to war against those passions that are within us. And then, of course, we read in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 12, how that um, there is war in heaven. When Michael, the archangel, and his forces prevail against Satan and those who are serving with him, and, and Michael wins out, because of his testimony, because of the blood of the Lamb. That war, which actually takes place in heaven, is a reality of what everything else is on earth. We're seeing mere shadows here. 
The reality takes place in the spiritual realm. Well, enough said there. We move on to say and to observe this. We must vigorously oppose the forces of evil arrayed against us. Notice how the Israelites, when they got to the land of promise, didn't say, well, God is sovereign and he's going to fight for us, and then sat down under an oak tree to watch it all happen. Even though God was sovereign and God fought for them and God was at work, it was necessary for the Israelites to fight the battle. They couldn't just simply let go and let God, to use a worn-out phrase from decades ago. It was their responsibility by faith to engage the enemy, knowing that God was fighting for them, but nevertheless, they were required to fight. And so we here today are worshiping the Lord. We could have sat at home and said, well, God is sovereign. It doesn't matter what I do. No, it is necessary for us to live the Christian life. It is necessary for us to be at war against those passions that are within us and take an active role in that because it is God who works in us. And so there must be this vigorous opposition to the forces of evil. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. A lot of things there placed in, in the form of a command because as Christians, we're to be about doing things. Now we know we're saved because of the completed work of the Lord Jesus, but we are saved unto good works in which we are to be engaged. For the weapons of our warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what the Christian is called to undertake. By God's grace. Not something that we can do in and of our own strength but something that we do because God is at work in us. So, we are called upon to vigorously oppose those things that are arrayed against us. And then the final point to make is this. The impressive conquest in Joshua points to our ultimate victory in Jesus. It's amazing that the Israelites were able to overwhelm the land in the way that they did, and over a long period of time, by the way, at least seven years, all of this took. We can read these chapters and think, wow, they crossed over the Jordan, and the next day they had it all. No, it took a long time to carry out God's commands and to occupy the land and to defeat the enemies that were in it. But in the end, it was an incomplete victory. It wasn't perfect. There were people who were not conquered. There were areas that were not occupied, as impressive as it is. So it's an imperfect foreshadowing of the perfect conquest that Christ has won for us. And oh, how thankful we can be for that, that Jesus is the one who does it all. And of course, remember, Joshua is the Old Testament name for Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. 
underscore what was to have happened in Joshua's day. Today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. It is a, it is a fierce battle when we're fighting the sin that's in our own hearts to take a stand as believers against unrighteousness, even in the culture. On this Sanctity of Life Sunday, yes, I must mention it. As we affirm that God has created us, he's knit us together in our mother's wombs, that those who are in the mother's womb are people created in the image of God. How did we ever get to a place where highly educated justices in the Supreme Court would read something into the Constitution that the framers never had any concept of. A kid with a fifth grade reading comprehension level would never find the word abortion in the Constitution. And yet we have news pundits telling us right now that it's there. Must be there because they tell us it's there. But it's not. How can there possibly be victory in all of this unless we depend wholly upon the Lord our God to take our stand peacefully yet firmly trusting in him all the way. Colossians 2, 14. He, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hmm. Sounds to me like the victory has already been won. We're just part of the mopping up operation. It's a good thing to remember. So that whether you're struggling, men with lust in the heart, whether it be a, a tendency to want to rely on substances like alcohol or drugs, whether it's a battle against pride or vanity, whatever it is that lurks in our hearts that keeps rearing its ugly head and causing us on some days to think, how can somebody like me be saved when I've got these attitudes and thoughts in my hearts? Well, first of all, let me say it's a good thing that it's bothering you. If it weren't bothering you, that would be the problem. The fact that it troubles you and you're wondering, what kind of person am I with all of this going on inside of me? It sounds to me a lot like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. And yet, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And God has triumphed over all of that in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are engaged in war in this life and we seek God in prayer, asking him to enable us to overcome and we can be confident that he has and that he will. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. You see, the victory is ours, not because we're able to win it, but because Christ has prevailed against it. 
You see, when Jesus uttered those words on the cross, which was actually only one in the Greek, when he said, it is finished, he meant it. He meant the debt was paid. He meant the enemy had been conquered. He meant that he had left nothing undone that needed to be done in order that we might be counted as his children and have an eternal destiny with God in his glorious heaven. We trust in Jesus because he is our leader triumphant. We trust in Jesus because he has conquered the enemy. And now we who remain awaiting his return, still opposed by an enemy that nevertheless is doomed, can have confidence that we will prevail, not because of our efforts, but because we have faith in the one who has done it all. It is finished. Praise his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, bless us, O oh Lord, we pray, that our confidence may not rest in ourselves, but in your beloved Son, our Joshua, the captain of your army, the Lord Sabaoth, the commander of the host. So, Lord, forgive us our sins. Forgive us for trusting in the arm of flesh and grant to us grace that we may draw close to Jesus, that we may firmly cling to Jesus and trust him to win the battle, even as he has. Oh, Father, encourage your people, strengthen us. There is so much in the world to discourage us. Give us eyes that we would not be overwhelmed at the sight of the enemy, but that we might be in awe of the vision that we have of our resurrected and triumphant Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.